Sail the world a different way with Fred Olsen Cruise Lines. Our award-winning itineraries are unusual and imaginative, bursting with local culture, history and wildlife. And aboard our smaller ships, the atmosphere is always warm and friendly. It'd be easy to follow the crowds, but we never will, because this is our way, the Olsen way. Book by the 31st of January for free drinks or spend on selected sailings. Visit fredolsoncruises.com for more information. T's and C's apply. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Zing Singh, your host for season two of the Women's Prize podcast, coming to you every fortnight throughout 2020. You've joined me for a special bookshelfy episode in which we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five brilliant books by women. Welcome back to another episode of Bookshelfie, which we have recorded during the coronavirus lockdown. We are practicing safe social distancing and also at the whims of our internet connections. So we're recording this episode for you remotely. So if there's any technical issues, please bear with us. Today's guest is Martha Lane Fox. Martha is a businesswoman, a philanthropist, a public servant, and she was also the Women's Prize judge in 2009 when Marilyn Robinson's home was crowned a winner. And she's also the chair of judges for the prize this year. She co-founded lastminute.com during the dot-com boom and since stepping down from the company in 2003 has gone on to sit on a huge number of boards, Marks and Spencers, Channel 4, and she patrons a number of different charities too. She was the UK government's digital champion between 2010 and 2013, and it was a role that saw her team improve computer literacy across the UK. She also co-founded the karaoke company Lucky Voice in 2005, a place where I personally have spent many, many hours singing Prince in, and the think tank Dot Everyone in 2015. In 2003, she joined the House of Lords as the youngest female crossbencher. Today, she sits on the boards of Twitter, the Donmar Warehouse and Chanel. She is a trustee of the Queen's Commonwealth Trust, a chancellor of the Open University, and she continues to advocate for human rights, women's rights and social justice. Martha, welcome. Thank you. How have you been doing in lockdown? Um, Well, varied, I think, like everyone. But I would sound like a terrible person if I said anything other than pretty good, just because I'm incredibly lucky I have a house with a garden so I can chuck my two three and a half year olds outside, which I realise is a luxury compared to lots of people. And I have the kind of work where I am able to uh, work at home quite a lot anyway, so I'm quite well set up. So I feel like I am in a relatively pre-prepared position, but it's still, it is a daily kind of process of thinking how is the day going to be? So I hope I still have a lot of empathy for people all over the place in all different situations. So I know this year you are the chair of judges for the Women's Prize. I am. What an incredible kind of circle that I've done through my life with this wonderful prize. I Mm. was a judge in 2009 when my friend Fee Glover, well, she wasn't my friend then, but she is my good friend now, which is one of the nicest things to come out of it, was the chair. And Marilyn Robinson's home won. And then uh, I was on the board of the prize subsequent to that because I just couldn't help kind of putting my oar in and thinking about how I might be able to help the organisation of the prize. And now to end up back as chair, I feel very lucky. What is the difference between being a chair and being a judge? I think think for me, probably the key difference is that when you're a judge, I think I felt 
a kind of dual responsibility to represent the writers that I had been asked to read, mm-hmm. but also my own specific um, kind of taste and subjectivity, because in the end, prizes are always relatively subjective. I think as chair, of course, I feel responsibility to the writers. That's always overwhelming to do them justice, to make sure you've read them carefully, to make sure you paid um, them all the, the right attention. But I also feel um, a big responsibility to make sure that all the voices of the judging panel are heard and that everybody feels as though they have books they love um, in the long list and now obviously in the short list too. So I think it's that's the difference. It's that you're making sure that um, it's not it's not such a quite a solipsistic activity. It's more mm-hmm. clearly a, the, representing the collective action. So are you the person in the judging room making sure that everyone gets the chance to speak and advocate for their chosen book? Oh, I wish I was in a judging room. I can't tell you how much I wish that was the case. <laughs> uh, we had our first meeting in an actual room. That's why mm-hmm. I'm dwelling that point, um, which is lovely because we didn't all know each other before. I'd met all of the judges individually before, but not we didn't know each other well. Um, and we had a great time. You know, it, it was. I know all judges always stay, say this, but uh, it would be hard to argue against this being a very strong year with talent such as our, all our shortlist clearly, but then also you know Anne Enright and Patchett. Margaret Atwood. We've had some big hitters and we've also had some very impressive first novels. So that first longlist meeting was uh, interesting, difficult at moments, exhausting, fun. But in the end, I think all of us walked out feeling incredibly proud of the longlist. The shortlist meeting, however, we had to do by Zoom. Right. Um, It was four or five hours, I think in the end, four and a half hours. Just a Zoom meeting of that long is quite tough anyway. God, yeah. It was hard because... Quite rightly, there were tensions around the books because quite rightly, people had real passions around certain books. And we had to cast, we all had to cast aside books we loved, you know, every single one of us. And that led to some moments of slight tension. And I can say this because I know absolutely that we're all still friends and we can all respect our choices, but it wasn't easy. And I think that um, added tension of not being able to stand up, walk outside the room, have a drink, have a laugh, give each other a cuddle, whatever it was, just didn't allow us to have that extra space. So what can you tell us about the shortlist this year? Well, what can't I tell you? You I could honestly talk for about 20 hours about this subject, so just shut me up. Um, I think that, you know, I had to look across the shortlist. What really strikes me, and I was thinking about this the other day, is just these are big books, you know, and I don't mean they're long necessarily. I just mean they're tackling important themes. They're really, you know, whether they're geopolitical or whether they're um, political with a P or big P or a small P, This, these are big topics. And I think they reflect the nature of where we're at in 2020 or for, as they were published in 2019 more, more often perhaps. So, I think that's the first thing. There are subjects here, you know, grief, identity, immigration, um, power, climate crisis. There, It's all in there. And mm-hmm. so anybody who has a vague interest in the world, who is a paid up member of the human race, will find something wonderful for them in these books. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is, though, that you know, each book is such a point of excellence. You know, as I said, this was an incredibly strong year, 25 years of the prize. Maybe a few authors wanted to get their books into this year. And um, we, we were wrestling some really extraordinary books out of the shortlist. And that's a very strange position to be in. So um, each book, I can honestly say, is a, a real gem. And I would press it into the hands of anybody with um, a high recommendation. Mm-hmm. 
how do you think women's fiction has changed over the years? Because you've been involved with the Women's Prize for quite a while now. Oh, I wish I was more of a literary expert. I can really only answer it from a reader's perspective and a kind of keen reader's perspective. I think, um, you know, the, the good parts are that uh, it feels as though there is more of an emphasis on women's stories than I can remember in my lifetime. You know, when I look back now, even to kind of TV shows we were watching when I was younger or things we were reading, don't think I was even aware of the complete absence so often of women's voices. Um, and of course, you know, The Handmaid's Tale was on every single kind of teenage woman's reading list and all of the things that um, you know we uh, loved as young women were, are still true now. But there was still much less richness in women's storytelling and women's writing. And I think that that probably has been the biggest shift in my lifetime. In now it's just unimaginable that um, there wouldn't be the, the kind of um, importance in all kinds of women's stories being told as there would be in male voices. I mean, we should never take that for granted because I think that still is quite a kind of Western liberal elite way of seeing the world. So I, I put it with those caveats. But I think the... Um, the, the, you know, the, the specifically around the prize in the last 25 years and last 10 years is that um, it feels as though you know, women's writing has just got perhaps more confident, is telling more stories from different angles. There are, you know, as I said, this shortlist is not inaccessible, not daunting, not too literary, but is tackling big, important topics. And if ever you need convincing that women's writing, uh, it just doesn't cover every subject under the sun, then you only need to look back at the, the Women's Prize over the last 10 years and look at the winners to see that everything everything is written about from every single point of view. So I mean, perhaps that's the change in just these, the, the credibility and the confidence and the um, validity of women's writing from all different angles. And I think you can see that as well from the books that you've selected for the bookshelfy episode because yeah. they cover a huge breadth of topics and time and different authors. Yes, um, but of course they were received at their time in very different ways, um, which is partly when I was reminding myself of them. Um, kind of interesting about them is that you know, I think any of those, well, we talk about the books, but any of them, if published now, would have had obviously a very different reception to when they were published. But even the ones published relatively recently, I think, become different because of different themes popping out or just the context having changed around what, what it was kind of accepted in quotation marks for women to write about. So the first book that you selected was The Golden Notebook by Doris Lessing, which I think is a great example of exactly what you've just been talking yes. about. Absolutely right. I mean, I was heavily influenced into reading this book by my mum, uh, who was an enormous Doris Lessing fan and has really, um, actually both my parents, my, my dad is a, a rare beast and he's quite a hardcore academic historian, but he also loves reading novels. And I think that's unfortunately more rare among men than it is among women. But so both my mum and my dad loved and encouraged me to read. But my mum particularly now, we're always talking about books. And she, I think, pressed the Golden Notebook uh, into my hands and um it's particularly i remember thinking about the experience of being at that time what was called Rhodesia but um you know south africa in the african subcontinent and the kind of oppression of that place and that being so struck by the the dual nature of 
the oppression in geography and then the oppression in, in the lead character's life. So it, it's an incredible achievement because she makes both very sort of local points about this individual character, but then huge geopolitical important points about what it was like in that country at that time. And how old were you when you read the book? can't remember exactly, and I don't want to make myself sound like some kind of uh, ridiculously uh, um, a precocious young person, because I really wasn't. I think I was probably about 17 or 18. Um, yeah, I think just pre-university is when I remember reading it. And what struck you about the book when you read it at that age? Well, as I say, I think I did I did not know enough about what had happened in um, South Africa and uh, uh what the, the politics around that and you know that was at a time when I rem- remember being given the afternoon off school when Nelson Mandela was freed so it was still such a live political issue in the late 80s and so I think that probably was particularly resonant with me um, but I also think you know the story itself is got this uh, very strong politics in it but also this kind of internal life of the central character, which is really overwhelming and, and incredibly written in sort of scraps and segments and like recollections and memories. So it was this very, very, very interesting and intoxicating combination of the big politics of the piece, but then also the kind of quite postmodern and strange writing of, of, the, of the story. And I remember thinking that this was just, wow, what is this? This is an incredible, I hadn't seen this kind of writing before. And what kind of effect do you think it had on you reading it at that age? Because, I mean, precocious maybe, but, you know, 17, 18, that's an amazing age to read a book by Lessing at. I think it made me want to read more Doris Lessing. (laughs) I think that's the main thing it made me want to do, which I did, um, and made me want to understand more about her um, and also about what had happened at that time in that country. And um, as I say, when we got given the after, maybe I read it actually when things so were trying to piece the chronology together. I think maybe I did read it after Mandela had been freed. And as I say, I was at school in central London and we were given the afternoon off school and we all went to Trafalgar Square. And I remember sitting on one of the lines in Trafalgar Square as they blasted out free Nelson Mandela from huge speakers. And it felt certainly in my lifetime like the most important moment of sort of freedom. And I think probably this, I must have read this. I think maybe that was my mum pressed it into my hands afterwards it took me a minute to remember the exact chronology so um yeah it definitely made me want to read Modoris Lessing it definitely made me think oh my god women can write anything and it's just it, it did blow my mind that both the style and the substance that's also an incredible moment to have lived through as well the um Nelson Mandela being freed yes I feel very lucky to have done that uh quite old now but it is a kind of moment of history um and you know extremely lucky that uh, my school had the forethought to let us go and run down and be in Trafalgar Square. I mean, that was that was really quite remarkable now I think back to it. I mean, I always think about what kind of pivotal moments each generation lives through because, you know, you had these kind of huge earthquake moments like Nelson Mandela being freed, the fall of the Berlin Wall. But then as you get closer to our current decade, you get terrible moments of you know time like 9-11 for instance um 70 well you have the pandemic now it just makes you wonder you know what kind of literature people are going to pick up especially young people that they're going to feel are going to reflect their times now yeah I, I totally agree with you I mean as you get to the great age I'm 47 and you think about those moments and I feel as though you know things that kind of framed the themes and topics that I guess I've 
sought out or saw in literature were based around those moments that I felt I personally experienced, as you say, and I definitely Nelson Mandela and the fall of the Berlin Wall in the late 80s was one also. You know, I lived in London while the IRA bombings were happening. I remember being involved in two bombs, you know, not, not hurt at all, but running down Oxford Street when the bomb exploded in John Lewis and then being again at school in central London, we were always being evacuated because they thought they'd seen a suspicious package. That seems such a distant thing now, but it's really hard to underestimate how living in London at in the late 70s, early 80s, late 80s, that was always around you as that, that anxiety about packages. Um, and obviously then the financial crash, 9-11, I was running my company lastminute.com, 9-11, and um, I remember somebody in our customer service team um calling me on the phone saying, come, come quickly, something extraordinary is happening on the television. And I went down to where the customer service team were and we saw the second plane fly into the tower live. And, you know, from every view, that is such an extremely surreal thing to witness. Kind of the first, many people have talked about it, haven't they, television being such a profound thing at that time, not pre-social media and so on. So that felt like a big deal, as did the financial crash because of the ramifications across everybody's lives, even if they felt a bit more hidden than perhaps what we're seeing now. So, yes, that's the funny thing about becoming nearly 50. You suddenly can kind of dot your lives with these moments. I remember reading somewhere that in 91, you ended up writing a paper about the Internet to explain what the Internet was, which seems now looking back on it, absolutely mad. I can't imagine people not knowing what the Internet was at the time and you having to mount an argument for the existence of a thing that is now omnipresent oh this was when we were actually when we were doing our business plan for lastminute.com so that was in 1997 and um it was uh no when i was at university i was certainly not writing about the internet i was writing about ancient history and um things far removed from tech although often very connected to ideas and innovation no that was in lastminute.com's early days you know 97 it seems pretty strange that's nearly 30 years ago it seems it seems weird that you know no one was interested in lastminute.com because nobody believed the internet was going to exist. I mean, they really didn't. They thought we were nuts for suggesting that uh, the internet was not going to just sort of slowly blow up. So um, I think that uh, it's easy to forget how quickly all those things have shifted. I know. I mean, 97 doesn't even seem like that long ago when you think about what was happening then. You know, Spice Girls, Dolly the Sheep, New Labour. You just assume the internet was there. Yes, exactly. But it really wasn't. And people certainly weren't buying things on them, didn't think it was safe to um, use their credit cards online. So, yeah, it, it it moved very fast. But those early days, it was a, just you were kind of on an evangelical mission to convince people that this technology was powerful, empowering and was going to be something that was going to be part of everybody's daily lives. So the second book you picked is Villette by Charlotte Bronte. It's her last book, right? Yes, I think so. Uh, but it is really a remarkable novel. And I think probably, for me, has more potency than, than Jane Eyre, which is obviously her most famous novel. Um, it's it's sort of loosely based on, I think, some of the events that happened in her own life as well, when she was um, sent to France to be a, um, uh, a tutor to some young people. But it's about a, um, a central character, called Lucy, who um, gets sent to, to France at a young age. And she's sort of a bit of a lacklustre character. But um, but it, she has this extraordinary journey. I'm not going to go through the twists and turns of the story, but loves ups, loves downs, a kind of 
she gets drawn to a particular man who then loves leaves her comes back well, it's a complicated complex story and it's got sort of lots of psychological pieces in it sort of semi um what expression is but sort of fantastical bits in it as well dreams and so on and you don't quite know at the end whether it's going to end up happy or end up sad but it's just an extraordinary piece of writing and you know, if you can think of that sense of sort of doom in Jane Eyre, she she builds on that incredibly as well, and it's really um, got such power to the imagery and and to this this young girl story, which I think at the time I read it was also probably one of the things that attracted me to it. When did you read it for the first time? Um, I think I read it when I was um, pretty young, actually. I think that it was one of those things that, having read Jane Eyre, I think my dad probably said, "Try this because it's a." Uh, it's really um, an extraordinary novel. And um, I remember, you know, I did ancient history, more, I did history more than, didn't do English for my A-level, I did history, Latin and Greek for my A-level. And I wished in a way that I'd done English, but I kept kind of reading novels. And I think I probably read this feeling a bit grumpy that I was meant to be reading Thucydides when I should have been reading Bronte. So um, I think probably, again, maybe around the same time as The Golden Notebook, but I remember thinking, what am I doing? Why didn't I pick English? Um, when I'd read it, read Villette as well, I wanted to be able to understand it more from different angles. Um, because it's, again, again, uh, thinking about this, it's also got this strong element of psychology. I mean, every book has, but the same in The Golden Notebook and in Villette, there are these strong, like a psychodramatic kind of um, battles. It's got quite a kind of gothic theme in it and... Uh, her psyche is is really interestingly depicted. You know, she's she often feels very lonely. She feels displaced by where she is. She's kind of got all these countervailing forces working in her life. She's trying. She becomes. She starts off as this very passive person. She doesn't end up as that person. So I think all of those kind of psychological drama, as well as the kind of just action drama, I found really incredible achievement. Sail the world a different way with Fred Olsen Cruise Lines. Our award-winning itineraries are unusual and imaginative, bursting with local culture, history and wildlife. And aboard our smaller ships, the atmosphere is always warm and friendly. It'd be easy to follow the crowds, but we never will, because this is our way, the Olsen way. Book by the 31st of January for free drinks or spend on selected sailings. Visit fredolsoncruises.com for more information. T's and C's apply. This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is a perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Official announcement. Sunshine is coming our way. Celebrate the changing seasons and the sweet taste of spring with a Baileys on ice alongside your favourite shortlisted book. Or, if you'd prefer a vegan treat, try Baileys Almond for the delicate taste of almond with a blend of real vanilla. And your third book that you picked is actually one of my favourite books, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson. Yes, I mean, what an incredible novel. Uh, and I only saw the film actually quite recently, but it was made into um, a film by a woman called Beban Kidron, who is now one of my fellow crossbenchers in the House of Lords. And I don't think she even knows this, but when I first met her, I was a bit overwhelmed because I'd 
quite recently seen the film and it was one of my favourite books and I couldn't really tell her that I thought what she'd done with the book was so incredible because so often you see something and you think, oh God, no, you've ruined it. But actually, yeah. she did a spectacular job, maybe a female director as well. Perhaps that helps. Orange Not the Only Fruit is about a woman coming of age, having a lesbian relationship, having a kind of tussle with the church and um, Jeanette's own background, as I understand it, very strong kind of Pentecostal family, very, very doer, very, very strict. And obviously her life uh, didn't turn out like that at all. So it's, there are much, many more parallels than perhaps I realised when I first read it when I was relatively young, I think in my early 20s. Um, but it's, she writes, she just got such a incredible... Um, She's got spiky, clever writing. She's got real wit to her, but also a darkness. And she just sees things, perhaps because of her own experience, not having been entirely easy. Um, and I, and you know, this novel, if people have heard of it, is partly because it's kind of famous for being a kind of lesbian novel. But I didn't. It's not just that. It's far beyond that. It really is um, about lots of things, and, and religion is a, a lot of, at the heart of it. So there's many, many themes in it, which I remember. Um, kind of being really interested by when I read it. And you mentioned you were in your 20s when you read this. I think so, yes. I think I was at university. Um, I think that a friend recommended it to me, uh, but I can't remember the exact place on which year at university, but I think I remember walking around Oxford with it in my in my backpack, <laughs> a well-torn-up copy of it in my backpack. A classic image of Oxford. Well, clearly, I know, from conforming completely to type there. I mean, you studied, you, you mentioned you'd studied classics and ancient history at Oxford. Yes. What was that like? Because you didn't you end up doing anything with a degree shortly after you left, or did you just go straight into tech and entrepreneurship? I, don't, I mean, yeah, I think the degrees are partly to give you directly transferable skills, but they're much more about trying to teach you how to think. And I didn't really love my time at Oxford. I know that sounds a bit spoiled, but I found a lot of it misogynistic. I found it a lot of it hierarchical, stuffy, old-fashioned. I had one or two tutors which were who were completely wonderful and I loved, but a lot of it I did not. I, as I say, I, I enjoyed history because I loved piecing together the past and I loved seeing the connections between you know, modern India and ancient Athens or you know medieval England and um, the Enlightenment or whatever it was. But um, I think I squandered a lot of it and. Certainly, I, I don't quite know what my degree would have led me straight into. So yes, it led me straight into a somewhat strange career in um, technology and entrepreneurship. So, but I do think that um, reading history, as as reading books, you know, does teach you a curiosity about the world and teach you about other people and different perspectives and trying to think about characters and casts across time. And that's what I always most enjoyed was making those connections and those bits of um, what might seemingly wildly different bits of time and space, actually, you can always find the connections. I mean, you've had a really varied career yourself, but what do you think are the connections between all the different things that you've done in your life? Um, I, I wish I could have had more of a plan so that I could say, well, it was this. But a lot of what I've done has been serendipity and then sort of sometimes necessity at this very serious car accident uh, in the early 2000s and so my working life had to be a bit somewhat reorganized and so didn't quite there was you know somewhat different to how I expected but uh, I really love now the different things I'm involved in I think if I hope I hope what links things are probably 
two, two or three different things, but you know, I did fall into the internet and understanding technology to a little degree early on in my life. So there is always an underpinning of kind of the what the technology we have in the modern world is doing to our modern world. Um, you know, that's why I started my business with my business partner, but also now, you know, I then went on to work a lot around government and use of technology and also um now being in the Lords as well, trying to bring a technology perspective to issues of public policy and legislation. So there's always some kind of technology pull because I feel as though it's important to ask those questions and to make sure that we are thinking like 2020 or 1820 when we try to answer those public policy questions. So that's definitely technology. But also, you know, I really always all my life I wanted to do much would go much more into public service than I did into the commercial world. I first tried to get into the home office because I wanted to go into the prison service because I wanted to change and reform the prison service when I was young. Lots of reasons why I won't go into why that was, but I got rejected because I didn't get a very good degree and then I went into technology. So um, I, uh, I've always, I hope, had a strong sense of public purpose. I helped you know, set up a charity. I've always tried to um, you know, contribute as much as I can and try and make things better. So you know, maybe flattering myself, but I hope if there's anything in my career that links the things I've done, it's always a sense around innovation and tech, but also always trying to think about how to improve things a little bit. Only one voice I know, and always with other people and teams, but but those are the things that motivate me and inspire me. I mean, I feel like we could talk about the tech issue for ages, because, I mean, it's really kind of the illuminating issue of our age. You know, everything just feeds back to technology and who can access it and uh, what it can do, what it's doing for who how much it costs who has access i mean i don't think that in 1997 people even thought that the internet would be the one thing that rules over our lives so much it's just such a strange time isn't it it's um it's this kind of, there's been a huge backlash against tech over the last two or three years people feeling understandably anxious about it my my small charity dot everyone did some research a couple of years ago of people 50% of people said they loved what the internet did for them every day and only 12% said they thought that it helped society and we've just redone that same research for the current moment and um you know it's not much shifted people feel a little bit more as though they understand about data and where it's going but only 19 percent of people feel as though um the technology is uh is built for them with their own best interests and i just you know, that's that's sad because these are technologies they're not going away they're getting more powerful not less powerful and if people don't trust them really but they sort of feel like they have to use them no none more so than at this moment in time then you know it, it's it's complicated because these i think are things that are just going to get more embedded in our lives not less and it's important that we trust them So the fourth book that you picked is How to Be Both by Ali Smith, which won the Women's Prize in 2015. It did. And I've reread it recently. um, And I have to say, I find it even more breathtaking, I think, than the last time I read it, which was probably a couple of years ago. Um, It's a story that is published so that you, it's two halves of of the same story. And one set in the modern day and one set in Renaissance Florence. And you get books published with the with either story first. So you might get your book publishing, sorry, copy of the book published 
contemporary version first, you might get the Renaissance version first. And it doesn't matter which way round you read them. You can read the book back to front, upside down, whatever. So that's just kind of an interesting device in itself. And it's as much a book about brilliance of writing and the way to write, in my opinion, as it is about the story. But it's such an amazing um, achievement because this is a story that, as I say, is set in these two time zones, but finds the links between them, which obviously I have found appealing because of, as we've discussed, my my interest in finding those connections through history. You know, it's about grief, about identity, about gender, about power, all those things. Also about art and our relationship to art. But it's also... Um, an incredible um, exposition of what writing can do because it's got these in- amazingly kind of imaginative and beautiful passages. It's like poetry at moments, short sentences, long sentences, you know, broken down sentences, fragments, memories, like songs, bits of technology in those bits as well, you know, things about the internet. It's really extraordinary. Uh, and But it's not literary. It's also a very good read and a fun read and it's, moving and um, I really really deeply love this book and it hasn't lost any of its power over time in fact I think some of the themes have got more resonant because there's a lot about um, internet technologies and if you think it was written I can't remember the publishing date but probably three or four years maybe five years ago it's got even more profound now so that was quite an achievement that Ali Smith pulled off that she could find those themes for all time especially in tech which moves so quickly. No, and especially, you know, you'll read a book sometimes and they'll mention technology like email or messaging and it'll just strike you as being completely false or, you know, like it feels a bit shoved in to make the book appear more contemporary. Yes, I agree, but that's not how this is in the book at all. And it, one of the um, the kind of story plots in it is that the, the girl in the contemporary part of the book who's recently lost her mother is kind of trying to understand her mother a bit more and there's a... Um, she thinks that she might have been being spied on by the state because she was quite an activist. She does discovers a whole lot of things about her mother, but there's a lot of stuff in there. No time is more kind of, um, as we've just discussed, these are really current themes around people's anxieties about what tech is doing to them, what, how governments are using it. So that's you know, it's quite extraordinary when you think about it. When did you become interested in using tech for you know public good and looking more to explore how technology could be harnessed for public service? Well, I I think it's actually more surprising that I started something commercial than the other way around. Right. I think after the accident, um, I did a bunch of different things trying to rebuild my brain back up again and as well as my body. And then I got this opportunity to work for Gordon Brown as digital champion for the UK and. Uh, I it suddenly I felt oh my goodness here I've, I've found all these boxes that have given me the real kind of motivation and energy he'd asked me to look at the at that point 15 million adults in the UK that more actually 20 million adults in the UK that weren't using the internet often skewed by um, socio-economic background I mean obviously some infrastructure issues in rural areas as well but often more often <clears throat> because people didn't have the money or the skills and that just suddenly I realized that I'd been operating in this sort of elite clearly of tech but more than that you know, this kind of excitement about startups and all of the things that we got overexcited by at lastminute.com and the current then the subsequent tech landscape you know, that just wasn't true of vast swathes of the UK and particularly you know the digitizing if you like of um, people's um, the services that people were using all the time you know we were having on the one hand 
amazing, amazing ability to order things on the internet suddenly or, you know, look for friends on Facebook. But at the same time, you couldn't actually just get anything done in government. So I think it was really in that late 2009, 2010, when I just thought, wow, this, you know, the world I have operated in and then the world I've sort of been thinking about from a completely different angle have, have got to come together. You know, we've got to m- match up the kind of charitable sector, the social sector, the public service sector with some of the technologies that um, I've been lucky enough to be exposed to. What happened with the accident and how do you think it affected the way you looked at your career since then? Uh, that's a, a, a big question, a hard one to answer um, about yourself, I think, a bit. I had a very serious car crash in 2004. I... Um, I spent nearly two years in hospital. I broke 28 bones. I had a stroke. Everything oh had to be relearned. So uh, walking, every, I mean, everything. And it lives with me every single day as a result of what happened to me. Mm. I am, you know, I had made money from my company. I could afford incredible care at home, got me out of hospital way earlier than other people would have been able to get out of hospital. I had access to kind of fast track um, physios, you know, emergency operations and practically a day doesn't go by. I don't think about people who didn't have that resources because there's no question I would have died. And that's quite a kind of sobering thought. Mm-hmm. So that changes something, of course, because you are, um, I hope I've always been grateful that you're kind of grateful ex when you realise that um, there's sliding doors moments. And then there's just the kind of just physical nature of now my life. So, you know, I walk with a stick outside. I have a lot of kind of, long-term chronic challenges and so I just have to be a bit more flexible in how I organize my working life that means I don't have just that one job that I do nine to five I have this kind of different sort of um, many jobs probably work as hard if not harder but just in a kind of slightly more flexible autocratic way I guess Um, so it did change I think it I hope it didn't really re- reorganize my values. You know, I think it's easy to write a story of someone's life and say, oh, well, after the accident, that was when she suddenly became this public servant. Or I don't I don't feel that to be true. I think what it just did was made me have the confidence to think some of the things that perhaps I had just sort of fallen into before. Now I really wanted to focus on the stuff that really mattered to me. Yeah, I think I've met lots of people in the tech industry who, you know, in the rush and excitement of being in a startup and making things and learning fast and making mistakes, they kind of forget the fact that the rest of the world exists and some of the world might not ever get the chance to use whatever technology they're developing because of really entrenched social issues. Yeah, exactly right. And the irony being that those entrenched social issues can often be helped or improved by better use of technology. Now, I don't mean by that that everything should be on the internet, not at all, but I do think that good use of the internet can help people's experience and it makes me laugh you know, as you say sometimes you have this conversation with me like why do you keep trying to force everyone online says the tech entrepreneur who's made hundreds of millions who's talking to me on like six different iphones at the same time and you just think well imagine if you hadn't had those access to technology i mean imagine now if you were in lockdown you don't have an internet connection or you can't afford one or you can afford one but you don't know how to use it you don't have the same opportunities for your children because of that you have the same opportunities to connect to your friends and family to get entertained whatever it is it's a, a more limited world and it's a more frustrating world and so you know, that alone now should be the, the moment that we see that we have to make sure that we 
make the UK as digitally resistant, resilient, sorry, as we can. We need amazing infrastructure, incredible skills. We need to make sure people whose jobs are going to change are equipped to deal with that change. And we crucially need to make sure that our public sector, hospitals, care homes, local government is in the 21st, 22nd century, not still in the 19th century, which sometimes they are. And that does not allow us to provide the best service to citizens. No, I think that's a really strong recommendation for technology. I feel like I completely agree that some people now are just very paranoid and suspicious. I mean, you just need to look at the, you know, very thin end of the wedge where people are just, you know, spouting 5G conspiracy theories to see that a lot of people are frightened of what they might not understand about technology and they're frightened of the kind of potential it has. Yes, I agree. I think that it, it, I think it really, it, it's not, um, it's not optional, this stuff now. I think that, you know, this kind of, it's like the climate crisis. We, we don't need to keep talking about whether or not we're about to face another cataclysmically kind of existential crisis. We're in it and we have to deal with it just as we are in this process of digitization. And either we will get a grip of it and help our country move forward or we won't and we will suffer because of it. But I think you know, it's that binary to my mind. I feel like we could talk about this issue forever, but we'd still need to go through your fifth and final book, which is Memorial by Alice Oswald. And this is actually, I think, one of the first poetry books that's been recommended by someone on Bookshelfy. Oh, well, I'm very glad indeed that that's the case. I love poetry. Um, actually, in this lockdown, every Wednesday night, me and five brilliant women discuss a poem for 45 minutes. It's one of the great joys of my week because, you know, even with all the work we're all trying to do and all the childcare, all the stuff, I can normally find 10 minutes to read a poem before we have our conversation about it. And it's just lifts your mind in a way that feels so fantastic. So I really urge anybody listening to this who might think, oh, I can't read an 800 page book, find a poem, just read a poem, any poem, because I guarantee you'll feel better at the end of it. Um, or not better necessarily, but you'll feel equipped to deal with the next chunk of day. Um, and I love poetry. And I think Alice Oswald is one of the most remarkable contemporary um, writers let alone poets that we have in the UK I'd, I'd love to meet her um, she has written a bunch of different things she's written a very uh, well-known poem called Dart about the river that she lives on in um, Devon but this is uh, something different which um, I guess appeals to my classical nature which is uh, again a, 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 an ode I guess a memorial to the soldiers that died in the war, the, the Trojan War, and um, it's really incredible because it's taking the fragments of what we know from Homer and telling them from a different angle and giving each soldier a moment in the, I guess, in the sunlight to be remembered. And it's so moving when you see the kind of scale of death and destruction through these individual stories or what we don't or do know about them. And she, it's not only a beautiful poem, like all poetry, she reads it out loud and just hear the, the, the beat of the verse through it. But it's also um, very moving about that war and, you know, the, the clever trick she plays in, in retelling it from, from this angle. I'm guessing you must have had to read loads of poetry during your degree. Uh, no, because I studied ancient and modern history, so... I didn't read that much poetry. I wish I had read more poetry. I'd probably been a better historian if I had read more poetry. Um, but uh, I think that, um, and I actually think, I'm just thinking out loud, I think that 
there's not enough inclusion of, of, of poetry in the study of history, actually. You know, there are some poems that are taken as historical texts, mm. like um, some Homer, I guess, but, it, it, you know, it's still this separation between fiction and non-fiction, which, you know, as I guess arguably what history is about in some ways too, is sometimes too great. And I often really learn so much more about history from reading poetry than from reading history books. I feel like sometimes the poets capture the mood of the time better than the historian. Absolutely right. No, of course, of course, of course. And that's why I think reading poetry now, I mean, even poetry that's written for another time is is often very illuminating and reassuring and comforting. Is there any poetry that you're reading now in particular? Well, this week, uh, we all dif- we, t- we choose different um, poets each week. And uh, I've been reading Adrienne Rich. I don't know if you know her. Poet. Amazing poet. Amazing poet, who I did not know well, I have to say again, not as a poetry expert, but I wish I had done. I feel somewhat embarrassed that there's a someone who hopes that they know a little bit about women's issues and a you know, strong feminist reader. But I hadn't read more of her poetry, but I've absolutely adored finding out about her. And I think some of the poems are completely fantastic. So that's who I've been discovering this week. So with your poetry club that you have yes. every week with your friends, all of you just read a single poem together yes. and then you discuss it. Yes, we do. And then someone else chooses a different poem the next week. That's a lovely idea because it's so much more accessible than reading a whole book. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't, you know, exactly. It doesn't really matter if you've read the poem or not. If you just can't get to it, we read it out loud when we're talking to each other. And you know, there's no point reading poems if you're not reading them out loud. And it's actually inspired me to um, spend time now each week with three different goddaughters uh, reading poems with them because homeschooling is obviously a freaking nightmare, and uh, everybody's at different levels of frustration or or delight. And one of the things I thought I could do is, is spend just half an hour with these three different people at different times in the week, women at different times in the week, let them choose a poem and us talk about it. So that's also been absolutely lovely because seeing it from a much younger person's perspective is is really wonderful too. That's an amazing idea. I actually think some people are going to go off after listening to this episode and do that themselves. I very much hope so. So many wonderful poetry anthologies. I, you know, um, my friend William Seacart produced this wonderful Pharmacy of Poetry, that's a lovely way to start. If you look that up, Pharmacy, my first poetry book was Ted Hughes and Sean Massini's The Rattlebag. That's a wonderful book of poetry. So pick anything up. You, you can't go wrong. So if you had to choose one book from the list we've just talked about as your favourite, which one would it be? Oh, my God, I can't do that. I, I actually can't. I'm really torn between Memorial and How to Be Both because they're both so phenomenal. Um, and I feel as though... How to be both on picking it up again in this current time. I had not imagined that I would see so many themes that felt relevant. Um, so I, I think I might have to choose how to be both. But I have to say, reading poetry, Alice Oswald's memorial. So I'm, not, I'm going to do a Booker. I'm going to do a Booker Prize and pick two, which is what not what we will be doing at all. We will have one winner with our prize, I promise. Um, but I, th- yeah, I think how to be both. It's just. It's such an astonishing, not only did it teach me so much about writing and language, but also about the human experience. So it really is a wonderful novel. Well, thank you very much um, for recommending that, because I think a lot of people will be going off and reading that now. We've actually discussed it on Reading Women. So if anybody would want to find out more about the book, you can pick up that episode and have a listen before you dive in. Yes, do. It's 
And again, I hope I haven't made it sound too um, literary. It really isn't. It is a literary achievement, but part of its genius is that it's very light of touch and can be very funny. So um, that's what I, I find it so such a wonderful, wonderful novel. Well, thank you so much, Martha, for coming on the podcast. My total pleasure. Um, this is one of the nicer technology experiences. I don't feel I've got like 5,000 people shouting at me on Zoom. I feel as though it's always a delight to talk about books. And yet again, I think, why did I not spend more of my life in the book world why have I spent so much time in tech so thank you very much for having me I'm Zing Zing and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media you definitely want to head to our website to find out more about the Reading Women Challenge get exclusive video and audio content and check out the hashtag reading women on instagram and twitter to join in the conversation around the 24 brilliant past winners of the women's prize of fiction please click subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast it really helps spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today thanks very much for listening and see you next time sail the world a different way with fred olsen cruise lines Our award-winning itineraries are unusual and imaginative, bursting with local culture, history and wildlife. And aboard our smaller ships, the atmosphere is always warm and friendly. It'd be easy to follow the crowds, but we never will, because this is our way, the Olsen way. Book by the 31st of January for free drinks or spend on selected sailings. Visit fredolsoncruises.com for more information. T's and C's apply.